great to see all of you here today. I want to welcome anyone here who's a guest with us this morning. We're so glad that you chose to be here with us on Easter Sunday. It's good to see some old friends and some new faces. And uh, we are excited to be here today. And we have a lot to be thankful for this morning. If you are uh, not a person who attends church uh, on a regular basis, or if you're not a person who has embraced the Christian faith, You've chosen a great day to come to church because today we're going to talk about really the foundation of the Christian faith. We're going to talk about uh, what what we stand on as Christians and what our hope is founded in. Actually, the subject that we're going to address today is one of the most controversial subjects behind Christianity and it's the reason that many people have chosen to reject the Christian faith. It's also, at the same time, the reason that many people have embraced the Christian faith. And today, of course, we are going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his people. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of his people. And I want to say up front that I am not going to try and persuade you this morning that the resurrection actually happened. There's overwhelming evidence that Jesus did in fact live, that he was a carpenter or mason from Galilee, that he performed many miracles, that he traveled with a small group of devoted followers, and that he was executed publicly on a Roman cross. There's also very credible and compelling evidence that he rose from the dead. But it's not my goal this morning to prove to you that this happened, and I don't think I could prove it to you. Because knowing that Jesus rose from the dead requires faith. It's a matter of faith. And I will instead today make it my goal to show you why you should want the resurrection to be true. And of course, wanting something to be true is different than something being actually true, isn't it? And, and I'll address that later. But I, I think that you first have to want this to be true. And so, the writers of the New Testament do not focus their attention so much on whether or not the resurrection happened. They all believed it did happen, and most of them were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ who talked with him and saw him and touched his resurrected body. And so the focus of New Testament writers is mostly on why the resurrection matters, why it matters for us today. And so that will be my focus as well. In fact, if you are a person who's ever wondered, what's the point? What is the point of my life? What is the point of my pain? What is the point of my suffering? What is the point of all my work and toil and labor? What is the point of all my commitments and sacrifices? What is the point of my marriage? It seems like sometimes it's not worth the effort. It's so much work. What is the point of getting pregnant when God continues to take away my babies too early? What is the point of parenting? Parenting is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do, and no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to succeed. What's the point of my friendships? It seems like everyone I get close to eventually grows distant. What's the point of my service and my sacrifice? I volunteer here and there and I serve every week. I set up, I teach, I love, I give, I listen, I organize and direct. And no one seems to notice. No one seems interested in helping me. I'm getting worn out. I don't think I can keep going like this. What is the point? What is the point? And today, my friends, I hope you see that the, I hope you see the point. And that it is so clear and bright that you have to close your eyes 
like you have to do when you stare at the sun on a clear day. The point is going to be set right out front and center for us to gaze at this morning. And to see the point this morning, we're going to look at the, the chapter in the Bible that, that expounds on the resurrection more than any other, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll have the verses behind me on the screen. And 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 was written by the Apostle Paul, this letter to the churches in Corinth, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that, that many of the people, over 500 people, who saw Jesus' resurrected body are still alive. And the Apostle Paul actually names some of them in this chapter. We're going to begin reading. We're going to just look at the beginning and the end of 1 Corinthians 15, just to get a bird's eye view. We're, going to, we're not going to look at the, all the middle stuff, we're going, but we're still going to be able to capture what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about and what the, why the resurrection matters. Why the resurrection matters. That's what we really need to grasp this morning. So would you follow along with me? 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We're going to pause there for a couple minutes. The first thing we need to know about the resurrection this morning is that the resurrection is gospel. The resurrection is gospel. It's good news. The gospel is something that we've built our church on. The gospel is of first importance to us. And the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is of first importance, period. The gospel is the most important thing in this chapter. It's the most important thing in the whole letter to 1 Corinthians. It's the most important thing in the Bible, the gospel is. The gospel is not good advice so that you can help someone's life improve. The gospel is not some formula or method that we employ in order to get closer to God, in order to be made right with God. The gospel is not something we do. The gospel is not something that gets us into heaven, and then after the gospel, we simply try hard and do our best to please God. There is no after the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing. The gospel is what saves us, and the gospel is also what is saving us. It's what we need every single day in order to walk with God. Rightly. The gospel is the beginning and the end. The gospel, what is it? It's not what we do. The gospel is news. That's what it is. The gospel is something we proclaim. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has done something to make peace between us and God, between Sinners and a holy God. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about what God has done. It's not about what we do or what we can do to be right with God because we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. The gospel is what God has done 
in order to rescue people who were far from him and to bring them near. That's what the gospel is. There's a legendary British preacher, his name was uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he used to say, if you ask someone, what is the gospel? How do you know that someone understands the gospel? What he would do is he would say, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that God accepts you? And if they would say something like this, well, I, I know that God accepts me because I try my hardest to do what's right. I try my best to please God. I read my Bible. I pray. I give my all. I give 100%. I'm a, I'm a, a good person. If they say anything like that, they don't understand the gospel. Do you know why? Because the gospel has nothing to do with what you can do. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Old Testament. This was prophesied for thousands of years. God would send prophets to say, I'm sending a Messiah to atone for your sins. That's what the faith has always been about. It's never been about what we can do. It's always been about what God was going to do. And now it's about what God has done at the cross of Jesus Christ and through the resurrection. That Jesus Christ has died for our sins to cover our sins, to take our place on the cross so that God's wrath would be poured out on him instead of us. So that Jesus Christ was forsaken and not us. And that he rose again to defeat death so that we might experience victory over death. That is the gospel, my friends. It is news. It is something that has happened in history that changes everything about you. Do you believe this? That's the question that matters to me. Do you believe this news? Do you believe that it actually happened? Do you believe who Jesus is and what he's done to make us right with God? That news has the power to change everything about our lives. Because if Jesus did not overcome death, Paul will go on to say our faith is useless. It doesn't matter at all. If it's not true, it doesn't even matter. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. The resurrection is gospel. It's the, and the gospel is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. Now we're going to skip down to 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 50, and we're going to, to hear Paul's conclusion, okay? So first, the resurrection is, is gospel, and now we're going to see what the resurrection means for those who actually believe it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Beginning in verse 50, please follow along with me. The Apostle Paul continues on, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For, the, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body 
must put on immortality. The resurrection means that we will be changed. Everyone will be raised. Not, we're not just talking about Christians, even though that's the focus of this chapter. Everybody will be raised with some sort of new body, which is sort of a scary thing if you think about it. Because those people who do not belong to Christ, if they are given a new body that will never decay, that a body that can experience a heightened awareness and heightened senses and all of that, it means that they will experience to the fullest degree the agony of separation with God for eternity. And they can never die. That's what it means for them. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for those who have put their trust in God's salvation, Jesus Christ? It means that it means that we will be raised from the dead with a new kind of body. That's what it means for us. And there has been a lot of confusion about the kind of bodies that we will have. And this confusion has largely stemmed from the English rendering of the word spiritual. Which most people in America take to mean non-physical. And so many people have come to an understanding that our physical bodies will die and that physical bodies cannot enter heaven because they are somehow inherently wicked. But that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. The contrast is not between what is natural, meaning physical, and what is spiritual, meaning non-physical. That's not the contrast that he is getting at. The contrast in 1 Corinthians 15 is described with the following adjectives. Now pay attention to these adjectives and, and think about this for a, for a minute. He says we're contrasting the perishable with the imperishable. The, we're, we'll ha- right now, our bodies will be sown in dishonor. They'll be raised in power or raised in a glory rather. Our bodies will be sown or die in weakness, but they will be raised in power. Our bodies right now are natural. They will be raised spiritual. Okay, there is, that is a contrast, but it does not mean non-material or non-physical. Okay, he also goes on to say, our bodies right now are earthly. Our future bodies will be heavenly. And then finally, we have the contrast between mortal bodies and immortal bodies. None of these adjectives are contrasting the physical versus the non-physical. A better way to understand these are contrasts between the physical and the more than physical. The more than physical. Listen to N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. He, he, um, he expounds on this for a, a long part of the book. And one of the, one of the things he says is, what Paul is asking us to imagine is that there will be a new mode of physicality which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. The contrast, again, is not between what we call physical and what we call non-physical, but between corruptible physicality and incorruptible physicality. That's the point. And what he's getting at, I think, is that there is something incredibly heavy and permanent about our new resurrection bodies that will make our present bodies seem like dust, which is what we're told that we're made from. 
dust. That we will go back to the dust. Our new bodies will not decay. Our present bodies are decaying. We are all dying right now. Our resurrected bodies will make our present bodies seem ghostly, he says. C.S. Lewis, in his, his great little book, The Great Divorce, he called the redeemed in heaven solid people. Solid people. He pictured them as so dense and heavy that the earth shook beneath their feet. Think about this. Anytime a man has asked to see God, especially in the Old Testament, God would not allow it because he knew that if any corruptible flesh stood before and saw him in his presence, in his physical presence, that they would immediately be destroyed. And yet, in our new bodies, we will see God and live. Because we will be covered and protected by immortality and glory, a new kind of weight and density and permanence that will allow us to see God and live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes another contrast between our present bodies and our future bodies. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home or our earthly body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. He's talking about our bodies. We groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling or body. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is getting at there? He's saying that right now our bodies are fueled. We, our life is fueled by blood. Blood is what gives us our life. It's what allows us to, to live and breathe and move. It's what fuels our senses. It's blood. But, but flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So in our new bodies, we will not have blood. We will have no need for blood. In, in fact, we will be fully powered by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God will be our life source. Our lifeblood, if you will, in our new bodies. That's the contrast. And so the difference between your current body and your resurrected body is compared to the difference between a tent that would blow over in a strong wind and a building that is so strong and majestic that it can never decay. There is nothing temporal or forgettable or imaginary about this body or or imaginary about heaven for that matter. This life is what will be forgotten. This life is the dream. This life is like a mist. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our forever home. Our permanent home. And the resurrection means that we will be changed. That is our future home. That is what we look forward to. That reality is what changes our life now. If we believe it. Because it's true. Paul goes on in verse 54, 1 Corinthians 50, uh, 15, 54. 
He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the resurrection tell us that we will be changed in an instant, but it tells us that resurrection means that you and I no longer have to fear death. We do not have to fear death. Early Christians commonly faced death. They faced threats and danger and death on a somewhat regular basis. They were burned alive. They were thrown to the lions. They were covered in animal skins and thrown into arenas with wild beasts while spectators looked on. They were crucified, some of them. Christians today all over the world are facing similar dangers. On Thursday of last week, 147 Christian students were massacred at a university in Kenya by religious fanatics. On Thursday. And this is not uncommon anymore. We here in America, we don't face the kind of persecution yet that many Christians around the world face. We don't face torture. We don't face lions. We face lumps. We found a lump and now they have to do a biopsy. And now your life is, in, is, is not certain anymore. You made some kind of discovery that requires further testing. That's the kind of danger we face. We face doubts. We face opposition. We face trouble and brokenness. We face the shattered dreams of a new baby or a lasting marriage or a happy family. Our dreams die. And the same power that enabled early Christians to face horrible dangers and even death is available to us today. You know what that power is called? Hope. Hope. That's what we have. We have the same hope that they did. We have the hope of a resurrection. We have the hope of a new life. Jesus Christ has defeated death and has promised victory over death to every person who belongs to him through faith. Everyone who's identified with him. Paul describes, Paul describes death. He, he, he says that death has lost its sting. And so what he's describing here is the sting from a poisonous insect or, or like a scorpion or a spider or something like that. And it's not the sting that kills you. The bite doesn't kill you. You feel it. It's not the pain, it's the poison. That's what he's referring to. He's talking about the poison. The poison is what kills you. And what is the sting of death? We're told it's sin. Sin is what has the power to kill you. Sin is what has the power to separate you from God. Death cannot separate you from God. Jesus Christ has overcome death. Sin, my friends is what has the power to separate people from God. And sin is the sting of death. And Paul says here that death has lost its sting. And therefore, we who are in Christ have nothing to fear when it comes to death. Nothing to fear. 
Do you know why? Because our relationship to sin has changed. We're told that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been united to him. We have died to sin. Sin can no longer master us. It can no longer destroy us. We're no longer identified by our sin. We're identified with Christ. And therefore, when we die, we will not be judged for our sin. Because we were judged on the cross of Christ where he took our sin and he took our guilt and he took our shame upon himself and God judged his own son instead of you and instead of me. And if you believe that, death cannot hold you. You will be raised with Christ. You will be raised in glory. Isn't that amazing? Our church used to send, for, for about seven or eight years, from, from 2006 to about 2013, every year we would send about two teams of people, or twice a year we'd send a team of people to Cambodia. We were involved in a, in a rapidly growing church movement there. And we would send, we sent all kinds of, we sent about 20 to 25 different people from our church over the course of those years. And one, I, I never got to go, and I... <laughs> Maybe someday I will, but I, I was never able to go. But one of the things that people would talk about when they came back is sometime during their trip, either Paul or Tony or one of the guys would, would take this group into the marketplace, into a local marketplace where there were peasant farmers there selling goods and things like that. And, and they could experience the tastes and the sounds and the culture of Cambodia. And one of the highlights of the marketplace was there was always a, a tarantula stand or something. I don't know what they called it, but a booth of some sort where people were selling tarantulas as a snack. They, were, they would fry them and serve them up and you just eat them. Yummy. And, and, but the, the, the really interesting thing is they always had um, a bunch of live tarantulas there that haven't been, hadn't been cooked yet. You know, that was part of the draws. They're fresh. And so they always had these ones that hadn't been cooked yet. And so they would let you hold them and, you know, play with them or whatever. And I've got a picture here of my man, Kurt. In, in, as you can see on his head, there's one crawling on his head. It's about the size of his head. And, and I was like, I remember Kurt came back. I was like, Kurt, how could you let them do that? I mean, what if, and he's like, oh, it's no big deal. They defang them. They defang them. They take their fangs out. So they can't hurt you. And I was like, oh, well, in that case, I would do that. Yeah, sure, just give me a tarantula. I'll put it on my head. I'll put one on my face. I'll put one in my mouth. That's no problem. There's no fangs. They can't hurt me. I'm like, actually, what I said was, so? They took the fangs out. Look at that thing. That's terrifying. There's no way I would let you get a tarantula anywhere near me. I don't care if it has fangs or not. That looks scary to me. I've been scared of spiders my whole life. And taking the fangs out, I, don't, I can't pronounce that peasant farmer's name. How do I know? What if he missed one of the fangs? So, no thank you. And sadly, sadly, that is how many of us still treat death. We still think about death and we still look at death and it's scary to us. 
Even though, according to Jesus has told us time and time again, that death has no hold over you. You have nothing to fear. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus Christ died to set us free from the fear of death. That many people today are influenced by the fear of death. We're held captive to the fear of death our whole lives, but we don't have to be because Jesus Christ has overcome death. And yes, it may be painful. It looks scary, but it can't destroy you because Jesus Christ has overcome death. Death has lost its teeth. It's lost its fangs. It's lost its sting. And we have nothing to fear because we will not die in our sins. Our sins cannot separate us from God anymore. We will die in Christ, which means we will pass through judgment. And we will rise again with new glorious bodies that will never decay. And we will see our Lord Jesus face to face. And he will welcome us into the kingdom of God. To bask in God's glory for eternity. Death has no hold on us. There's this blog that I was, um, I came across recently. I started reading from a a woman named Kara Tippetts. She's 38 years old. She's married to a pastor in, I think, Colorado. And she's a mother of three. And she just passed away about three weeks ago. She died of breast cancer. She had a long battle with breast cancer. And the cancer won. And in her uh, obituary, they shared uh, just something that she had either... She wrote a book called The Hardest Peace. And this doesn't come from the book, but it's something that she said recently in her final weeks on this earth. And this is what she said. My little body has grown tired of battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath, and with it I pray I would live well and fade well. By degrees doing both, living and dying, as I have moments left to live, I get to draw my people close, kiss them, and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus. And he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wondering over his love will cover us all. And it will carry us. Carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. That is someone who is not afraid of death. That is someone who understands what Jesus Christ has done to death. He has destroyed it. We're told earlier in this chapter, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus Christ has done it. Finally, the resurrection means we can't give up. That means we can't give up. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, there's this last verse. It's interesting. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter. There's 58 verses. And Paul doesn't actually apply the teaching of the first 57 verses until the last verse. And he applies it in one verse. He applies this whole te- all the whole chapter in one verse. He says, this is what you need to do. And this is such an awesome verse, and we're going to j- try to take it all in in just a few minutes. And this is what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what should our response be to all of this? How should we react to such an amazing hope? Does the chapter conclude by saying, Therefore, since you have this hope, sit back, relax, and don't waste your energy because God has promised an amazing future for you. No! That is not how we should react to the resurrection. That is not how we should react to God's promised future for us. The resurrection means that anything we do in response to the gospel is not wasted. It means that our work is not wasted. Our love is not wasted. Our generosity is not wasted. Our service is not wasted, no matter how menial it is. The hours we spend listening to people unload their burdens on us is not wasted. All of it matters. All of it will have weight in God's future kingdom. All of it will somehow carry on into God's future kingdom. All of it matters. None of it is, none of it will go to waste. None of the rejection that you have experienced when you've talked about Jesus with people will be wasted. None of the work that you do that goes unnoticed, the work you do in love for the gospel will be wasted. No matter if people didn't, whether they noticed it or not, whether they gave you any gratitude or not, whether they showed you any appreciation or not, anything that you and I do in faith will somehow last into the future for eternity. And it will be redeemed by God. Our work will be redeemed. Our bodies will be redeemed. Our world will be redeemed. And all of that should cause us, according to this passage, to work harder than ever. It should cause us to overabound in the work of the Lord. Overabound. It should cause us to work tirelessly for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. That's the appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It should cause us to be willing to give up everything so that more and more people will be raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Imagine, imagine two women working the same job for the same pay. The job is not something either of them wants to do, The working conditions are terrible. The pay is pathetic. There's no special status that goes with the job. In fact, most people look down on them because of their job and wonder why they would do this job. One of the women is promised that after two years of doing this job, she'll get a $1,000 bonus. The other woman, same job, same pay, same working conditions and all of that, is promised that after two years, she'll get a $1 million bonus. Which of these women will last? Which of those women will work harder? Which of those women will work with joy? Which of those women will be able to endure the conditions, endure the attitudes from other people, endure the pathetic paychecks? You see, one of them is working primarily for the here and now, but the other is working for the future. And she will never give up because she knows what's coming. If you, if you really believe that this world is the only world we will ever experience, 
there will be times when you will give up. It might not be till you face death, but you will give up. You will never be able to face death and danger and disease and disability and failure or financial disaster with hope and certainty. But if you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, it changes everything about your life right now. It means there's nothing you face in this life that God, that God has not already written the final chapter on. It changes everything. And do you know why it changes everything? Because the gospel is not some made-up story. The gospel is not meant to inspire us or to evoke some temporary emotional response. The gospel is news about something that has happened in history that changes our relationship to God and to everybody else and to this world. It's news about what's real and what's true and it has the power to change your identity and to change your future and to change your life right now because it's true. Listen, if I wanted to prove to you that the resurrection actually happened, I would say that the best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the church. It is us. It is the fact that after 2,000 years, there are millions of people this morning gathering to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And do you know why that is an amazing reality? Do you know what makes that so amazing? It's the fact that the gospel is so incredibly offensive and that most people over the course of history have hated it and they have hated God's people and they have tried to kill God's people and they have succeeded in many, in many, many occasions. Christians have been opposed on every front they have been murdered and executed and threatened and tortured. They have been wiped out in whole cultures. And yet the church continues. It continues to meet. People continue to gather. They continue to embrace Jesus Christ as their only hope. And if Christians just wanted that to be true, would they risk their lives for it? I don't think so. The reason that they do it is because they know it's true. We know it's true. And you know what? If we face the kind of persecution that many Christians are facing today, and we were risking our lives in order to gather here this morning, we would see who actually believes that it's true, wouldn't we? Would you come here at the risk of your life to proclaim Christ and to celebrate him with your true brothers and sisters we are the proof today that Jesus Christ is alive. We're the best proof. And someday, everybody will say that it's true. Everybody. We're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, they will see his resurrected body. And I hope that you are there and that you long for his coming and you rejoice at his coming. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your grace and the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus Christ and I thank you for the victory that you have won over death by raising your son from the dead to conquer sin, to conquer death, 
and to guarantee, God, that one day we will be raised to new life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for those here today who doubt the resurrection of Jesus and who doubt the resurrection of his followers. I pray that you would give them hope, that you would open their eyes to see the truth and that they would confess their need for a Savior. We thank you, God, that your word is true and that your gospel has the power to change our lives. And I pray that today we would experience that power, that power over sin, that power over death, that power over the hopelessness that sin oppresses us with. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and fill us with the hope of a new life, a life with Christ in his presence, seeing him face to face. We long for that day, God, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.